0: I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded an episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join in the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current cropping and crop management topics.
1: Good morning, and welcome to the Strategic Farming Field Notes program brought to you from the University of Minnesota Extension. Uh, my name is Dave Nicolai. I'm with the University of Minnesota Extension. I'm a, a regional agronomist in the uh, field crops area, and we want to welcome our guests here today on our program. Uh, first of all, uh, Dr. Rodrigo Worley. He's Extension Wheat Specialist at the University of Wisconsin Extension, and also Dr. Joachim Wurzma, uh, Extension Small Grain Specialist from the University of Minnesota at Crookston. Uh, with that, uh, I also want to make sure that we understand that these sessions are also funded and brought to you by University of Minnesota Extension and includes the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council and also the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council. Uh, with that, I'm going to turn the program over to uh, Dr. Rodrigo Worley from University of Wisconsin, all the way from uh, the big state of Wisconsin in Madison. And I see you're dressed appropriately for the day. Uh, you have on the colors, as, as so do we. Uh, but this is an opportunity to talk about something that is, I think, of importance. No matter where you are, whether you're on the Minnesota side of the river or the Wisconsin side of the river, we still deal with weed control. Um, uh, Dr. Worley's had an opportunity to be at the University of Wisconsin a number of years, and so he's had an extensive program, graduate students and research projects, and uh, involving a lot of different emphasis. Everything from planting green and soybeans, um, but also dealing with some of our harder control weeds populations, waterhemp, giant ragweed, etc. So, we're taking away Rodrigo. Uh, we'll let you uh, share your slides. You're going to talk a little bit about these. And we'll have available this information as a PDF as we go forward. So uh, with that.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much, Dave, for the invite. Good morning, everyone. Uh, hope you're all doing well. Uh, we're now really happy here in southern Wisconsin. We finally got uh, some rain. So that's uh, good news there to, to start uh, the day here. So today I'm gonna to be focusing on corn, soybean, post-emergence uh, weed control concentrations. Uh, please keep in mind that I'm gonna be focusing on Wisconsin situation here, but I think what, I'm, what I have to share is also gonna be very relevant uh, for you all uh, in uh, Minnesota. Before I start, I just wanna acknowledge uh, my team, the outstanding team of graduate students, academic staff uh, in our program. The bulk of the work I'm gonna be presenting Uh, here today. I I only get to present uh, it to you because they are the ones uh, conducting uh, the efforts. And I also want to acknowledge our sponsors. We're a very applied research program. We're primarily funded by Wisconsin uh, corn and uh, soybean growers and also by our uh, crop protection industry. And I just want to put a plug. uh, So those of you who are watching this live tomorrow, Thursday, June 15th, uh, at 9 a.m., we're going to be at Janesville at our Rock County Farm, where we're going to have our giant uh, ragweed management plot tour. So if you're interested in participating in a field day, uh, if it's not too far of a drive for you, tomorrow at 9 a.m., we're going to be at the Rock County Farm uh, in Janesville, if you're interested. So and throughout, you know, my presentation today, there will be QR codes and links that you can access and you're also going to find all the information I'm going to be presenting here today in our website, which is uh, whiskweeds.info. So here's just a plug for a few day tomorrow, uh, June 15th, starting at 9 a.m. at Janesville, Wisconsin. So here's what I intend uh, to cover uh, during this presentation uh, today. Uh, These are the main questions I've been getting this past uh, four weeks. Uh, the first one being, you know, we've had a very, very abnormal Uh, dry spring, what's going on with the pre-emergent herbicides that we sprayed at the time of planting. Uh, Next, I want to discuss some considerations for uh, post-emergence weed control in corn and soybeans. Here in Wisconsin, most of the post applications to corn have just uh, happened or are happening right now. And next, we're going to start moving into uh, soybeans. So I want to share some of the considerations. Uh, We've been really dry. In that sense, the weeds that are emerged, they are, um, you know, they've developed some really thick cuticles. Uh, Those weeds have been stressed, and stressed weeds are typically more difficult to control. So folks, spraying post-emergence foliar herbicides right now, one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, as always, we need good coverage, and we need to make sure we're using the right adjuvants and the right tips when making applications. We need coverage, we need volume, we need the right adjuvants if we want our herbicides to work particularly when our weeds have been stressed because of dry conditions. So those of you uh, spraying herbicides, make sure you're optimizing your application so we get good uh, controls from those uh, applications. And then I'm going to wrap up uh, this presentation discussing some carryover concerns, uh, potential carryover concerns for the next uh, growing season, depending on the decisions we make uh, this uh, growing season here in 2023. So the first thing I wanna say, and this slide I actually presented, Dave, when I was in Minnesota about a year and a half in your winter meeting in December, uh, talking about the value of pre-herbicides, okay? And myself and extension colleagues, industry, we all stand behind uh, this slide, this recommendation, okay? Pre-emergent herbicides are the foundation for chemical weed control, okay? We've had a tough year here uh, with dry springs, you know, with a dry spring where our herbicides didn't get properly, Activated, so our pre's are not working as well as they should have if we had received enough rainfall. However, we still stand behind this recommendation, okay? The pre-emergent herbicide programs are foundation for weed control. Without pre-herbicides, it's very difficult to sustainably manage weeds in our corn-soybean production systems, okay? So regardless of what has happened this year, it's been dry, okay? We still stand behind a recommendation, having a pre is way better than not having a pre-herbicide. So that's one point I wanna make today. And I wanna go back to this slide because if you go in the bottom here, you see that some of the concerns that we have with with pre-herbicides. You know, the first one there is timely activation. The pre-herbicides, they need rain. Uh, so they worked for them to work, okay? And that's one thing we haven't had a whole lot of, okay? The next one that's often a concern is sometimes crop response. Some of those chemicals, they do cause some crop response. And for 20 years we haven't seen that because you know the, the glyphosate was doing all the job there we didn't have to rely a whole lot on preys, so we haven't seen a whole lot of crop response uh, for you know a couple of decades now but now that we're starting to use our preys again crop response is normal uh, sometimes we do see that but that hardly impacts uh, crop yields when the herbicides are applied according to the labels okay and then lastly especially when we have dry seasons carryover become a concern Uh, some of the herbicides that we're using. I'm going to use an example here, which is mesotrion in corn. Mesotrion is really affordable. Uh, You know, every single post-application or pre-application in corn, pretty much our growers are using mesotrion. So I think we're overusing mesotrion. And then when we have dry seasons carry over into their soybeans, the next year become a concern. Okay. So here's the situation, Uh, it's just not only in Minnesota, it's not just only in Wisconsin, it's all over the corn soybean uh, belt uh, of the United States, okay? And then what we're seeing here in Wisconsin is that our early crops, the crops that we planted in May, early May, late April, early May, they caught a little bit of rain and those crops that were planted early, they're looking amazing, okay? And the weed control in those crops that were planted early are also okay because we planted early, we spray our pre-earlies, and they got about a half an inch of an inch of rain uh, for activation. So those crops are looking good. The ones that I'm concerned about are the crops that we planted later, the mid-late May. Uh, the soil surface was really, really dry, and what we're seeing right now is a little bit of a not even uh, establishment of our corn and soybeans. And those are the crops that also didn't get that activating rainfall for the pre-emergent herbicide. So those are the crops, the ones that were planted a little later are the ones that I'm telling our growers here in Wisconsin to keep a close eye uh, on, okay? So here's uh, what happens uh, with a herbicide, a pre-emergence herbicide after it's uh, applied. It's a very complex uh, process, okay? There's a lot that happens there that needs to happen for the herbicides to get into soil solution and for it to be available for weeds as they emerge and can control them. Okay, so it's a very complex process. And on top of all that, a lot of our growers are adopting uh, cereal rye cover crops. So now not only do you have to have the herbicide get to the soil, but you also need the herbicide to go through this heavier amounts uh, of residue. And this is an area of interest uh, for a research program here in Wisconsin. We're doing a lot of that work. If you're interested, we can chat more about Uh, that later, but that's going to be a conversation for another day. What I want to discuss here today is this, okay? So if you spray the pre-emergence herbicide and the herbicide is sitting on the soil surface, uh, those herbicides are prone to volatilization and also photolysis, okay? So some herbicides, they degrade uh, with sunlight, and some herbicides, they volatilize. So it's important to understand which herbicides are more prone to that. And to discuss that, I'm going to use an article that was... uh, Written by our colleague, Dr. Bob Hartzler. Dr. Hartzler, uh, Dr. Hartzler uh, was an extension weed scientist at Iowa State University, and he retired uh, recently, but he's written over his career some amazing articles there that I often refer to, and this is uh, one of them. And back in uh, 2020, uh, they had a really dry spring in Iowa. So Dr. Hartzler put this uh, article together describing which herbicides are more likely to be photodegraded and which ones are more likely uh, to uh, volatilize, okay? So this is what this table has here. Uh, we have a table with, very, with a very comprehensive list of pre-emergent herbicides uh, that we use in corn and soybean production uh, across the Midwest. And what's very interesting here, EPTC or eradicane is, mo- is the herbicide that has the highest chance for volatilization, okay? And that's why the herbicide, it's, it's recommended that herbicide is incorporated in soil. Okay, so the higher the number here, uh, the more volatile that compound is. And just looking at the stable here that we have in front of us, you know, after eradicating another herbicide that's also highly vol- volatile is uh, trifluralin. Okay, and we know that, and that's why we incorporate this herbicides. Uh, another one that I want to discuss is metolachlor. So metolachlor has higher chances uh, of volatilization as well. But after that, as you start seeing the exponential being smaller than minus three here, the chance for volatilization is very low. So what am I saying here? Most herbicides that were commonly used in corn and soybean productions they have a very low chance of volatilization. The other aspect is this photodegradation, okay? And you're gonna see an L here by most of the herbicides uh, other than S-metolachlor, and trifluralin. Okay, so all these other herbicides that I have here the stable, they have a L, which indicates low chance for photodegradation. So Rodrigo, what are you saying? What I'm saying is that some of the herbicides that were sprayed three, four weeks ago, they haven't had an activating rainfall, they're sitting in the soil surface and they're not you know they're more like recent uh, molecules, and they're pretty stable in the environment. okay? So even though they were not activated, they're sitting in that soil surface, my, my gut feeling here is that most of those herbicides are still in that soil surface and now that we're starting to catch some rain those herbicides will get activated and they're gonna provide weed control for you, okay? So my point is those herbicides are still in the soil surface, they're pretty stable molecules. If we get rain here, you're still gonna see value of those pre-herbicides that were sprayed a couple of weeks ago. So now I wanna uh, discuss a study uh, that was conducted by our graduate student, uh, uh, Tatiana Severo. And this is a very interesting study where we're comparing multiple pre-emergent herbicides in corn and their residual control in giant ragweed, okay? And this research was conducted in two years at our Rock County farm where we're gonna have our field day uh, this week, 2021, 2022. 2021 was more of a normal year as far as precipitation goes. And we had about uh, two inches of rain, uh, you know, two weeks uh, following application. Whereas in 2022, last year was a similar scenario as what we're observing this year, where within two weeks, of uh, spraying our trees and planting our crop, we got less than an inch of rain. Okay. Then the common question that growers ask me and the agronomists ask me say, Rodrigo, how much rain is enough? And in agronomy, the, the most common answer is always depends, right? Uh, but ideally, according to this paper that was published recently by Landall et al., uh, depending on herbicides and weed species, the ideal volume of rainfall there from a pre application uh, is about. Uh, two to four inches of rain within the first 15 days. If we want to see ideal performance of our residual herbicides, we need to have between two and four inches of rain within the first 15 days of application, okay? So rainfall is very, very important for a priest to work. Okay, so now I'm gonna dive into some of the results. And the the main takeaway, especially in a normal year where we have enough rain to activate our herbicides, our herbicides containing three sites of action, two to three sites of action are the ones that perform the best, okay? So the standard programs that we have out there, the Resicors, uh the Acron, Maverick is a new uh, herbicide that's now available. It's very similar to Resicor, uh, but instead of having Acetochlor, it has Pyroxysulfone as the group 15. So as you can see here in a normal year, this, this you know standard three-way pre is doing a really good job. Now, when we move into 2022, when it was a really dry year, surprisingly there, what you're going to see is that dicamba by itself provided the best level of residual control. And we're doing a lot of that work where we're learning, what we're learning is, you know, if folks are in corn or if they are in an extend platform system, that dicamba herbicide sprayed as part of a pre-program in a dry spring can provide very good levels of residual control, three, four years I would never make that recommendation, but after doing this type of research now, for several years, we're consistently seeing that, okay, if we're going to make a pre-emergence application, and then if there's no rain in the forecast for a couple weeks, I would definitely consider uh, having dicamba as part of our pre-program, because that uh, dicamba can take care of weeds as they emerge until the other residual herbicides get activated in the soil, okay? So this is the story about the pre's and pre-selection. Here's where we're at right now, okay? So these are pictures that I took a couple of days ago from our corn and soybean uh, studies. As you can see there, we have all the ragweed breaking through, okay? So all the large seeded broadleaves are coming from down below in the soil surface. They're up and going, okay? Those weeds are difficult to control with residual herbicides and they can merge uh, from deeper in the soil profile, okay? So those are up and going, you need to go out there and pay attention. But one thing that has been surprising to me is the amount of grasses out there, okay? So again, those sprees were not activated properly. There's a lot of grasses, foxtails, barnyard grass uh, coming through our corn and soybeans. But the one thing we haven't seen a whole lot of that yet is water hemp. okay? So we saw the early flushes of hemp the first, second week of May here in Southern Wisconsin. And then we have a postdoc, Ahmed Mobley, who is keeping track water hemp emergence and water hemp just hasn't emerged for the past few weeks here because it's been incredibly dry. now with this rains that we just got over the past couple of days, what I'm thinking here is that water hemp is going to explode. Why does that matter? It matters because you got to be strategic. You have ragweed that's growing out there, you have a bunch of grasses that are growing but that water hemp is not exploding quite yet and it will soon, okay So if you trigger a post application now you got to put more residuals down, but does that mean you're gonna to have to come back in your soybeans for a third post? to clean up the water hemp that's yet to come. So we need to be very strategic and understand what's happening on the field by field basis. So we make the right call as far as our post-emergence applications go, okay? So grass control, uh, that's been a common question here in conventional corn. Rodrigo, I have conventional corn, non-GMO corn. How do I control grasses? Uh, we have a publication, a research trial that's been conducted now for two years. It's available in our website. The main chemicals for grass control in conventional corn will be nicosilferon, okay, or uh, accent, uh, timbotryon or laudis, and then the third option is topremazone or armazone, okay. In our trials, there's three options are the, the most effective ones for grass control in conventional corn. Moving into now post-control, uh, we have a set of data that I want to Make sure you understand this is available to y'all. Uh, we have Waterhamp and Giant Ragweed. Giant Ragweed, we have a lot of effective options for post control. Water hamp is where it gets a little more complicated, okay? So if you're in an Enlist system, the 2,4-D choline would do it for you. Fosnate would do it for you. Uh, if you are on an Extend system, uh, you have, well, you no longer have Dicamo because you're past the cutoff. So you can rely on the Liberty, which is going to be my next point. If you're in a non-GMO system uh, or in a Roundup Ready only, the PPOs uh, become your main option, okay, but control post-emergence of water hemp, uh is becoming very, very uh, difficult in soybeans. Enlist is becoming very common, uh, the Enlist E3 soybean technology uh, here in Wisconsin, and my understanding from talking with Dave is the same situation in Minnesota. What we've learned last year is that applications of Enlist herbicide, the 2,4-D choline, that were performed under high temperatures, they did not provide good results, okay? So if you're going to be spraying Enlist post-water hemp, try to pick days when the temperatures are below 85. So 70, 75 is ideal. If you're spraying under the 90-degree scenario, we just tend not to see very good control with Enlist post-emergence. And then to wrap things up here from a glufosinate standpoint, you know, folks that might be using Liberty, we've been doing uh, lots of research looking at tank mix com- combinations. When we use Liberty by itself, sometimes we don't get complete control, but as we start mixing Liberty with other herbicides, we often see increase in consistency, okay? And one thing we've been looking at uh, quite extensively is combinations of Liberty with PPO herbicides. And what we're learning is every time we mix Liberty with a PPO, whether that is lactophan or Cobra, uh, Flaxstar uh, or resource, okay? We enhance uh, water hemp control. And then as we talk about that, the first question that growers asked is, okay, Rodrigo, if you're mixing glufosinate with a PPO, that's great for water hemp control, but what happens to soybeans? What about injury? Usually the most injury we see is when we have Cobra. And I think you all have sprayed Cobra or seen COBRA applications, COBRA tends to be the most injurious uh, herbicide, regardless whether you're mixing with glufosinate uh, or not. Uh, but some of the other PPO herbicides, such as uh, fomazephan and uh, resource, they tend to be less injurious. So if you're concerned about injury, but you still want to optimize glufosinate, you may want to consider uh, those tank mixes. And then lastly, soybean yield, even though we've seen a lot of injury with COBRA, COBRA with glufosinate, uh, we have not seen any impact on yield. Okay, so again, if we're up against a tough year, the water hemp might be tough to control. Uh, this might be a scenario where you may want to consider tank mixing glufosinate with a PPO herbicide. And we have a blog article on that that's available uh, to you. Okay, so I talked a lot about chemicals. What about other options? Uh, last week, I was driving to our farm. Uh, this is a corn field that's pretty weedy. And the farmer uh, was incorporating some urea into row cultivating, and, and you can see there. And then this week, this farmer is going back with the post-emergence application. So again, it's all about integrated strategies here, uh, thinking outside the jug, so we make sure that the herbicides that are still effective uh, remain effective, okay? And then lastly, in dry years, carryover becomes a concern. So there's a lot of mesothrion being used in corn, uh, pre and post. Remember uh, there is a 7.7 fluid ounce uh, max of Callisto per year. Do not exceed that, uh, you know, and make sure you're not spraying that mesothrion too late because otherwise this mesothrion or Callisto you're spraying in corn may become a problem for your soybean crop next year. And then on the flip side, okay, the flexstar star we're, we might be using in soybeans this year, uh, if spray too late, can cause injury into corn next year. Those are the main herbicides we see carryover uh, issues with, okay? So I know I went through a lot of uh, topics here today. All the, the information that I presented is available to you. So if you have questions, please feel free to reach out to either me or Dave, and we'll get that information uh, to you. Dave, thank you very much uh, for the opportunity.
1: Yes, thank you. If you can hold on for a little bit, we'll see if there's any other questions on the end, but I just wanted to preface uh, the slides today will be available as a PDF and we will have them accessible on our uh, transistor uh, a website and then we'll follow up with a crop news article uh, with the link embedded. So we'll have an opportunity to do that. Just one little clarification you mentioned about water and rainfall for, for uh, you know, ideally a number of inches, but we always talk about beggars can't be choosers here. So if we can, if the small seeded broadleaves, I, I, I think we still would like to have that half inch. If, if we we can't have it all, but we're gonna to have to have have some. I think I think you would probably be in that, in that ballpark, wouldn't you?
0: Yeah, so that's a good point, Dave. So the, the half an inch is kind of the rule of thumb that we talk about. The half an inch works if the soil is already wet at application. If you're starting off with a dry soil, then we go more to three quarters of an inch as an ideal minimum amount for activation of that pre. That's a good question.
1: Yeah, and I, I think your point is well taken about water hemp that we, we're, we're not out of the woods, uh, certainly. So uh, if you haven't put a pre on, you still have an opportunity sometimes, if not a layered approach, opposed um, to merchants, And finally, I know the Liberty situation over here will, will work out. And just in the same as Wisconsin, the warm temperatures, the better we're going to get on that Liberty, you know, on, on terms of that. So I'll come back on that. But I want to have some time. Uh, for our our guest up in northwestern Minnesota, Dr. Uh, Joakim Wurzma, a little bit. And uh, how is our small grain growing? Joakim, is, uh, is it out of the ground and, and is the color the right color and green? And are we gonna have a crop this year? And we finally melted the snow in Crookston. So kind of like, where are we? So,
2: you know, we started again a little bit later than uh, we'd like to start across the state. Uh, the first small grains in Southern Mint probably went in around the 20th of April, but I think a lot went in the last week of April. Um, up in the valley, uh, it started first week of May. Um Progress was relatively rapid because as in Wisconsin and across the Midwest, we've been dry in Northwest Minnesota, too. Uh, the only exception that where it's been really wet is uh, kind of central North Dakota towards the valley. And uh, there it's there where they've had the most trouble. It's like the Devil's Lake Basin, et cetera, getting the crop in. Um really rapid emergence uh, because we've had record heat uh, and record pace of the crop development. Um, The trials, for instance, in the center that got planted on the 28th of April, if my memory serves me right, uh, six weeks later, I had barley that was starting to head. That's probably two to three weeks faster than most years. Um, So, All in all, good establishment, uh, quick emergence, good stands, uh, record pace of development. Uh, So we're gonna have probably a very short crop, which isn't all bad because that probably means less lodging. As far as yield potential goes, we're not seeing as much tillering as we did last year uh, because there after we got eventually got the crop in, it stayed very cool through the month of June, as opposed to what we're currently in you know, encountering. Um, Disease wise, pest wise, it's been relatively quiet. Uh, I, I have a hard time finding tan spot. Uh, the models are indicating that there is, you know, we've had due periods long enough uh, here and there for tan spot to start, but scouts uh, haven't found it, nor have I had a lot of calls about it. Um, and with the crop already heading, we right away switch gears towards Fusarium head blight. The models so far, except for a day here and there, uh, have been very low risk. Um, I will see, have to see if that changes as more of the, you know, the spring season, uh, the spring seeded crops are approaching it, uh, and especially in the heart of the valley. Insect wise, uh, Bruce Potter found uh, aphids about a month ago, I believe, and Southern Min, uh, small i've had two or three calls about some aphids and oats uh at of which one field was a threshold so overall the, the numbers aren't great and uh, they are migrating north um uh, the scouts last week found some in basically the southern valley so they are slowly migrating north which isn't uncommon but the numbers have been low um Because it's been dry and we had a dry fall, uh, the scouts found uh, grasshoppers, which isn't surprising. Uh, And so, especially in the Northwest Minnesota, we might indeed get in a situation again where we need to treat for uh, grasshoppers uh, in small grains. Likewise, armyworms have been several flights. The most recent one was last week and it made it all the way up to Roseau. Uh, they like, for instance, they like perennial ryegrass, and so that's where they land uh, first before they land in small grains in that area, and that's where they find them. So, as far as you know, forecast for the crop, uh, I just wrote an. I finally had a chance to write some crop news article yesterday, and basically, uh, given where the crop, a uh, majority of the crop right now is in stem elongation phase. Um, That's when water use really goes up uh, about a half an inch or a quarter of an inch per day uh, evapotranspiration uh, at these temperatures actually creeps a little higher. And so we need all the four-leaf clovers, uh, lucky rabbits feed, or anything else, uh, because we need rain in most areas. Uh, there, you know, this rains have been very spotty and some, so, so some people probably have adequate, but I would argue most could use at least two inches um, as long as it doesn't come in 20 minutes.
1: Do we have enough nitrogen out there, Joachim, or from a nutrient standpoint, things okay?
2: Uh, everything looks okay. Uh, I was on the NDSU conference call yesterday and something we rarely ever see, but it's indicative of the very dry conditions is a chloride deficiency Uh, in some soils where that can happen. I think most of Minnesota, it would be really rare to see chloride deficiencies. Um, The other thing that we might see uh, because it's been so dry is on the sandier soils, we might see some sulfur deficiencies. And that looks different from nitrogen and the easiest way to explain that is if the new growth is lighter than the old growth, it's more than likely a sulfur deficiency and you would see it on the sandy ridges uh, in a field first. Uh, If the new growth is a little bit darker than the old growth, uh, it's a nitrogen deficiency. But I've seen very little tire tracks and patchiness that I would attribute to uh, fungicides. We have seen some weird carryover, which Veridro, you know, uh, can chime in as well. Uh, One of the carryovers we've seen uh, that's maybe surprising to people is Callisto carryover uh, in small grains, which leads to some really funny symptomology uh, on the small grains. not in oats, but definitely in wheat.
1: Okay, So that's about it. I have a, a one question came in, and Rodrigo, you want to turn the camera back on. This is in regards to um, actually a, a question from Iowa, but it's similar to what happens in Minnesota, too, and other places. Uh, a farmer was seeing cupping in soybeans. It was dry last fall, limited rainfall, pretty dry this spring. Uh, they're wondering, is can stinger herbicide carry over? And he used it last year for thistle control, along with putting it as was impact natrazine, kind of a cocktail mix and, and that type of thing. But any general comments uh, about some of those herbicides and their ability in a, in a dry fall and a dry spring to carry over?
0: Yeah, that's a good question, Dave. And we we do have seen uh, stinger carryover. It's not as common as we see for uh, mesotrion, but depending on when that application happened, you'll see it. And what's interesting when we see it, at least in our trials and in our commercial fields here, it pops up when the beans are about V2. So you're gonna see it for about one node, and then it kind of goes away once you nodes know max, It goes away, and again, usually between the V2 V3 growth stage, which is happening for us. Right now, here in uh, southern Wisconsin, probably very similar for you all in, in Minnesota.
1: Yeah, so I, I know the stinger can be uh, problems, and we can have it everything in the road ditch, hay, and so forth. But uh, certainly, that has ability too. For if it's if it's too much, we've had Group Twenty Seven uh, carryover, and Tom Peters in the red in the valley. Uh, Yokum has mentioned uh, you know Flex Star uh, carryover, right. um, and and that has happened again in, in a dry year. So we'll have to have to see uh, with a lot of those areas and situations and hopefully rainfall will, will help in those situations. Um, but, uh, you know, don't give up scouting for weeds. Well, any other last comments here? We're at the close of our program. We went a little bit over, uh, but I don't really feel bad about that at all. So, because <laughs> I think it's helpful information uh, uh, with with that. So any other closing comments, Joachim or Rodrigo at this point? Uh, otherwise uh, uh, we will have a copy of this and a copy of the slides in the PDF and a recording um, and other information available. And if they want to go find more about uh, weed control results on individual projects, research projects in Wisconsin, uh, we didn't even get a chance to talk a little bit about planting green and crimping and so forth. And, and we'll have to save that for the for one of these future programs. We talk a little bit more about that and, and cover crops as well uh, with that. Okay, all right. If if nothing else at this point in time, uh, again, I want to thank uh, not not only University of Minnesota Extension here, but the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council and the Minnesota Corn Research and uh, Promotion Council. So we want to thank again our speakers, uh, Dr. Rob weaver Extension Weed Specialist at the University of Wisconsin, and also Dr. Joachim Wersma, uh, who is our Small Grain Specialist located at Crookston, Minnesota, for coming on the program and getting up early in the morning and staying with us. So we really appreciate that.